Good morning, His Place Church. Um, it is a beautiful day, not just because of weather, not just because it's a day and we're all alive and kicking, but we can gather and worship together in the word, in song, in prayer, in giving, but we worship together as the body of Christ. Um, we're recording this on a Thursday, and Governor Little just put out the phases for moving through as we can hopefully gather back together physically. So first thing I'd like to say, and if you have any questions, feel free to call me, email me, or one of the other elders to get some clarity on it. But we are still going to be getting together for communion on Mother's Day, which is May 10th. Now there's going to be some slight changes in how we get together, where we sit and what we do, but we will do communion together and celebrate the Lord's Supper as we gather. It'll be a great time. Um, a little bit on the preaching schedule today, we have Pastor Dave Knowles again. Um, next next uh, Sunday, we will have um, Jason German will be preaching as we continue on in First Peter. And then the 10th, we'll do communion together. And then on the 17th, Pastor Dave Knowles again as we look um, for the next step for His Place Church. Um, if you and your growth group or your family is not comfortable with coming on the 10th because of the, uh, your age or your preference, I leave it up to your conscience, but you would like to participate in communion, I bought 500 of those little communion cups and I would love to deliver them to your growth group leader or to your family in the next two weeks. So please reach out. If you want to participate in communion but not join us on the 10th, let me know. We would love to bring them to you so that we can celebrate communion together. Baby bottle boomerang. I said it. I said it right. Um, we are still doing and participating with open arms doing baby bottle boomerang. It's one of their largest fundraisers, and we want to support the strategic partner in the North Idaho area. Um, we are not handing out baby bottles we are going to, they're going to have a website with an online baby bottle or they will gather them. Still going to run between uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day. So keep them in your prayers. We'll give you some more details probably through the newsletter or even next Sunday in the announcements on how they're doing the online baby bottles. If you have questions again, please feel free to reach out to me or you can reach Open Arms at their website. Um, let's, let's continue our time of worship. We are going to read together Psalm 148, praise the name of the Lord, and then we will sing together, and then we will hear the preaching of the word. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all, he, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, Stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and hills and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, 
creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord as we pray and begin this time of worship. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, you have created all things. You hold all things together. You are sovereign, Lord of all creation. Father, we worship you. We worship you and we praise you. Father, we thank you because you have given us so many good things. We praise you and we worship you and we thank you because you are worthy, alone, worthy to be exalted. Thank you for the body of Christ here at his place. Thank you for all the men, women, and children that call his place home. Father, we, we long for the day and we pray today that you will heal the land, not just physically, not just from the COVID virus, Father, but you'll heal hearts and relationships as we put our hope and our trust in you in all things. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray, amen.
God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your faithfulness and the truth of your word. We bless you and praise you and lift your name high. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Howdy. Good morning. It's, it's good to be with y'all. Um, you know, last week I, I realized I, uh, I misspoke about something. And so I want to correct that this morning. Um, I, when I was attempting to break the ice, uh, because we're separated by a camera lens and in quite a bit of distance, I said uh, several things about myself in introduction. I said that my wife and I had been married for uh, almost 30 years, and that's true. I, I said that we had four kids, and, and college age and above, and, and yeah, that's true. And I said that we had four cats, and, and that's true. And, and I also said we had 10 ukuleles. Um, but you know, Sunday I was watching the service, odd to watch yourself preaching on a Sunday morning via TV, and, and I thought to myself, maybe I should go and, and I had a lot of ukuleles go through my hands over the years, and, and maybe I should count the number of ukuleles in the house. So I did, and uh, we only have eight at home right now. Now, in my defense, um, my oldest son just got married, and he took a ukulele with him, and his wife also has a ukulele that used to be part of our house, but there's only eight, so I feel bad, and I, I need to make it right. So, honey, if you're watching this right now, I want you to know those two packages that are coming by Amazon are for a very good purpose. <laughs> Enough of my silliness. If you would, would you please turn in God's word to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what we're going to read today. The text that we're going to study today is, is going to start in verse 10. We left off with verse 9 last week. Um, but before I read that, and while you're turning there, a friend encouraged me to, maybe it would be helpful, to provide an overview for the book, a really quick overview so we can know where we're going. So if I look at 1 Peter, I see essentially five overarching emphases in 1 Peter. And the first one is this, joy and salvation. And that would be from chapter 1, 1 verse 1 to verse 12. The second section I see is encouragement to live in holiness, and that's from chapter 1, verse 13, to chapter 2, verse 12. I see submission to God as being the primary theme in chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 12. I see suffering for the glory of God from chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 4. And then there's Peter closes with some final encouragements to the church in chapter 5. So again, I see five overarching sections to our book, joy and salvation, living in holiness, submission to God, suffering for God's glory, and final encouragements. Last week, we almost covered the entirety of the section referring to how we're supposed to have joy in our salvation in the midst of trials. And today we're going to pick up on the tail end of that and move into what it means for believers to live lives of holiness. And you're going to see how those two connect. So before we do, let's read God's Word. So again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. If you're here with me, I'd encourage you to stand in honor of God's Word. It says this, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and her sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, our text today picks up right here. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your hearts for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, again, I pray that you would let your word ring out this morning. Help me to get out of the way. Help me to say what it says in the way that it says it. I pray that you'd give these folks ears to hear that your spirit would illumine their minds to understand what your word is saying to them. I pray that you'd apply it deep into our hearts. I pray that we would desire to live more holy lives after we're done listening to what your word has to say. Lord, work on us, change us, make us more like Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week in 1 Peter... 1, 1 through 9. Peter reminded suffering believers that they can have joy in Christ, and he, and he gave them four reasons. The first was because God had planned for their salvation. The second was God had promised their inheritance. And the third was God had a purpose for their trials. And the fourth we touched on, because they were privileged to experience God's saving work in their lives. Now, it's interesting because the next 
couple verses actually bridge between the joy that we can have in Christ and the salvation that we have in the midst of suffering and the holiness that we're supposed to live. And you'll see today, as we go through 1 Peter 1, 10 through 19, you'll see that we're going to encounter the first four steps. The first four steps every believer must take. You must take, I must take. The first four steps you must take to live a God-pleasing life. The first one is this. Recognize the privilege of your salvation. Notice that's the same as the reason for joy that we had last week in the midst of suffering. But it's also key to understanding how we are to live a holy life. We need to recognize the privilege of our salvation. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So he's pointing back to the salvation that he'd just been talking about, and wait a second, we should probably stop for just a moment and let's, let's identify our key terms. What do we mean when we say salvation? What are we saved from? We are saved from the wrath of God towards our sin. We are saved from eternal condemnation under the wrath of God that we have deserved by our sin. And we are saved from the power of sin to enslave us any longer. We are saved because... Christ Jesus willingly took the eternal punishment we deserved upon himself. We are saved because our sins have been imputed, have been placed in the account of Jesus Christ as if they were his and not ours. We are saved because the wrath of God was satisfied concerning the sins of all who will ever turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. We are saved because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, has been placed into our account, and the Father declares us righteous in Christ. We are saved from, we are saved because, and we are saved by, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. What happens when we're saved? We are made spiritually alive. We are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, of his glorious light. We are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, and the old and unresponsive heart of stone is removed, and we are given soft hearts of flesh, responsive to God. That's the salvation we're talking about. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Notice that the words salvation and grace are equated in this phrase. He's saying that the salvation and grace are talking about the same thing. Why? Because salvation is always of grace. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, the undeserved favor of God poured out on us in our salvation that was to be yours. Now think about this. If you were a believer... In any of those Roman areas to which Paul was writing, you just learned something. You learned that your salvation was not an accident, that not only had God planned it, which we saw in the first section, but here, 700 years before Paul is writing to them, the prophets are prophesying about the salvation that would be brought to them. God knew their name. 
he, he, he thought about them. Their salvation was no accident. And the prophets were prophesying about this grace. They understood some, but they didn't understand it all. So they searched and inquired carefully. The idea is they made a careful investigation. They worked really hard. They spent a lot of time and energy trying to understand more fully what the Holy Spirit was saying through them. Verse 11, they were inquiring. They were trying to understand what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he's talking about Christ. Interesting, in the Greek, the word person isn't actually there. So you can translate it, what person, meaning who is the Messiah going to be? Or it can be what circumstance will the Messiah come? And that's how the Christian Standard Bible and the NIV translate it. Both are possible. But all translations say, or what time he would come. So the questions they were asking would be either, who would the Messiah be? What would the circumstances surrounding his appearing be? And everybody would be asking, when would he arrive? Why would they ask that? Because what they saw was so amazing. I imagine they had to wonder, is it coming soon? Is it coming soon? Will we see it? But they inquired carefully, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them Oh, the Holy Spirit of Christ means the Spirit sent by Jesus. The Holy Spirit sent by Jesus to be in them to prophesy. So notice all prophecy is not of the will of man. All prophecy is, is done by men who are carried along by the Spirit of God speaking his words. The Spirit of God in them was indicating, was revealing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets was telling them, and they were writing down and declaring to us that Christ would suffer and that Christ then would be glorified. Christ would suffer and then be glorified. And all this was predicted, testified beforehand by the Holy Spirit. And notice the word sufferings and glories. Both words are applied to Jesus. They understood that the Messiah would suffer and be exalted. Both things would happen. Where did this happen? Well, we see it in Isaiah 49, for instance. 49 verse 5 says this, and now the Lord says, and this is Jesus speaking, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant. So Jesus is talking about the Father in his incarnation to bring Jacob, meaning Israel, back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, now the Father is talking about Jesus, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Again, that's a prediction of what Christ would come and do. Isaiah 53, this is more familiar. Verse 3, speaking of Christ and his suffering. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, the prophets prophesied, and I could give you many more. You could read Psalm 22. David prophesies about Christ, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you. Now, obviously, Peter's original audience were the believers in those Roman territories in modern-day Turkey. But this is just as true for us today as it was for them. It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving. The answer that the Holy Spirit gives to the prophets when they ask, when, what circumstance, who? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Their prophecy about Christ was for a later generation. Their prophecy about salvation to come through Christ It was for a later group of people. 700 years before Isaiah was writing down what the Holy Spirit was predicting for them. And again, their salvation wasn't an afterthought or a byproduct, but it was part of God's plan from the very beginning, just as yours is. They were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So notice, what's happening is the things that the, that the, that the prophets had written down about Jesus, about his suffering, about his later glory, were announced by whom? Through those who preach the good news. Those would be the apostles by the Holy Spirit from, sent from heaven. Hmm, this sounds like Peter at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. This is exactly what Peter does. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 22. He says this. This is Peter's first sermon ever after the Holy Spirit comes and empowers him to preach. It says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosed loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, here's here's the Old Testament prophet David speaking, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." And later on, he quotes from Psalm 110 from David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, that's the father saying to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, talking about his glorification in heaven. The Holy Spirit sent preachers to give his word. And the word contained the prophecy that the Holy Spirit had given through previous prophets. So that they might be saved. Tell them about Jesus. Help them to trust in Christ. And what a privilege it is to be on this side of salvation, to understand 
what Christ has done. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 13, 16, and 17, he said, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, they long to see what you see, and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear, and didn't hear it. Guess what, folks? We know <laughs> what those prophecies were about. Tom Schreiner Scholar writes, New Testament believers are incredibly blessed to live in the time when the predictions of the prophets have already come to pass. We're not guessing. We're not asking. We know it's Jesus who has brought our salvation. Now that was a kind of a long intro. But notice the next word. Look at verse 13. Therefore. In other words, the fact that we must recognize the privilege of our salvation leads somewhere. It's connected to the next line. Look what he says next. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now, this, the first step that we must take to live a holy life is this. Recognize the privilege of your salvation. And then from that place of gratitude to the Lord, number two, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. That's why he says, in fact, in the Greek, it's, it's like this. Gird up the loins of your mind. Kind of a weird statement. Girding up your loins would be something like, a, imagine a, a Hebrew soldier. He'd have a, a fairly long garment and to prepare yourself for battle, you would need to reach down, pull that garment up through your legs and tuck it in your belt so that you, your legs would be free to run. That's what girding up your loins is. But here, it's girding up the loins of your mind. That's what it says in the Greek. In other words, you're preparing your mind for action. That's the idea. To live. What action? To live as God calls us to live. He says we've got to prepare our minds to action for action, and we need to be sober-minded. And the idea behind this is, is almost the same idea as being self-controlled. It's, it's in control of your own thinking. Remember, self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's not Holy Spirit control, it's self-control. He gives us the ability to control ourselves by his grace. Well, here, we're exercising it upon our mind, we, and you do it by avoiding anything that leads to irrational thinking and actions. So, so there is a serious-mindedness that, that needs, to be, needs to have clear thinking. And, and where do we get that? We get that from, from God's word. We get that from thinking God's thoughts and not the muddled thoughts of the world or the thoughts. And by the way, I don't know about you guys, but, but I find it so very easy if I get very far away from God's word, if I don't spend time in it every day, pretty soon I find myself worrying about things that don't need to be worried about. I find myself concerned with things that are really not part of God's agenda for my life. Why? Because I have... I, I, I'm no longer being sober-minded. I'm no longer seeing things from God's perspective. So we need God's word to do this. So he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. And this is a command. Set your hope fully. Now remember what hope is. Hope isn't, I hope this is gonna happen. I, I hope this occurs. I really don't know. No, that's not what it's about. Hope is being absolutely certain about what God has promised and knowing it's coming, but it's still in the future, so we're waiting for it eagerly, eagerly. And he says, set your hope, your longing, what you're looking forward to, what you're hungry for, what you're living for. Set your hope fully, completely, totally, altogether. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. Now remember, grace that will be brought to you 
He equated grace earlier with salvation, and he's talking about the fullness of salvation that will come when Christ comes back. Set your hope fully on when Christ comes back and consummates your salvation, completes it, the fullness of our salvation, the acquiring of our heavenly inheritance, the bliss of unhindered relationship with the one in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Set your hope fully on the grace that's coming. Remember, we are saved as believers. We are being saved and we will be saved. He's saying, set your hope fully on the moment when your salvation is completed at the return of Christ. Believers, can I say it this way? We're supposed to be very heavenly minded. And I know there's an old saying that says, well, you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, biblically speaking, that's, well, there's a Greek word for that, B-O-L-O-G-N-A, um, baloney. It's not true. It's impossible, scripturally speaking, to be too heavenly minded. And what I mean by that is too focused, too longing for, too hopeful in the second coming of Jesus. Why? Because that does not distract you from the main point of our lives down here. It motivates it. It motivates it. So our focus as believers needs to be on the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that provides motivation for our lives in a particular area. So remember, there's, he's talking about, he's moving us through four steps that we take to live a holy life. And the first is, we recognize the privilege of our salvation. The second is, we prepare our minds for action. How? By setting our hope fully on what is coming in Christ's return. And the third is, we prioritize holiness as our new family culture. We prioritize holiness as our new family culture. It's important that we, that we define holiness, and we're gonna do that in just a second. But notice how he starts in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice how he starts it, as obedient children. This is who we are saved to be, obedient children. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, we are chosen by God for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we're saved to be, obedient children. But notice, it's a family term. We are in relationship with the God who calls us to be holy. He's our, he's our father. Notice the exhortation is set in the context of God's family. We're his children. And obedient children desire what? To please their father. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Do not be formed by. Do not be guided by the passions of your former ignorance. The passions are, the, are our old sinful lusts, our desires, our longings that were ungodly, that were not for the things of God, or even maybe they were for good things, but they were apart from God. They, they, they cared nothing for God. Those are our former passions. And, and honestly, folks, can I say this? We're, um, I don't know if you all have ever lived in rural areas, but have you ever looked at a cow pasture? Ever noticed cow pastures have trails through them? They're real skinny trails, and cows are fat, but they walk these little skinny trails. And whenever uh, the truck comes to feed the cows and they dump the feed off, all the cows get in lines, and they walk those little skinny trails. Why? 
They did it yesterday, and they did it the day before, and they did it the day before that. It's the only way they know how to walk that way. They always walk the same little trails. Well, as believers, before we come to Christ, we establish some patterns, some trails in our lives, some behaviors apart from Christ. Some of those behaviors might be good, humanly speaking, but they're apart from Christ. When we come to Christ, we still have those old patterns. Even though the power of sin is broken in our lives, those patterns must be changed. So what he's talking about here is we should not be conformed, no longer formed or guided by those old trails, the old passions of our former ignorance. Notice he says we, were, we used to be ignorant. We're no longer ignorant. See, part of being saved is turning from sin, and the Holy Spirit increasingly illumines our mind to know what displeases God. We're not guessing anymore. We're not in ignorant darkness. Because we know the Lord, and we're learning more and more of his, of his will, word and his will, we're no longer in ignorance. We know what those old passions led to and what God is asking us to, to now be. But notice he uses a word of contrast in verse 15. Don't be conformed to the passions of your, former, of your former ignorance, but as he who called you, that's the Father, who called you, 1 Peter 2, 9, he called you out of darkness into light. By the way, people become holy because they're chosen by God to be his people and they now belong to him. He calls us. He is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Okay, the word holy fundamentally means set apart. God is set apart from his creation in that he's not a part of it. He's transcended over it, although he loves it and he's involved in it. But particularly speaking, God is set apart from everything that is in opposition to his character, everything that is sinful, everything that is wrong. That's, by the way, how you define sin, that which is in opposition to God's character, as he shows it in his word, typically by his law. God is set apart and we're also supposed to be set apart in all our conduct. That does not mean we're supposed to be transcendent over creation. We're part of it. What it means is we are to be morally set apart unto God. We belong to him. Just as he is set apart from sin, so are we to be set apart for sin. But we're also set apart for him, for his purpose, for his service. As he has called you as holy, you also be holy. How holy? What's the extent of this holiness in all your conduct? It's interesting. The word conduct is used seven times in 1 Peter. I think it's used 11 times in 1 and 2 Peter. That's almost half of the number of times it's used in the New Testament. Guess how much Peter is concerned about Christian conduct? <laughs> Hugely so. Why? When we get saved, we're changed. When we get saved, we're changed to be Christ-like. That changes our conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. And he's going to use this word again in just, a few, in just a few minutes. We are to be especially separated from everything that separates us from God. So anything that is against God, believers are supposed to separate from so that they can be his, serving him. Verse 16, why are we to do this? Not only because he called you and he's holy, but since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice, because the word says it. What is this saying about God's word? This is saying God's word, his, his word, his written word is to be obeyed. That's from Leviticus 19.2. Moses penned those words from God. 
We are to be consecrated, dedicated to God, personally conscious that we belong to him as sons and daughters and desire to please him in every way and avoid everything that's in opposition to his character, loving good, hating evil. Why? Because the Bible says, be holy for I am holy. Because that's his word. It's his command to us. How holy is God? How holy is God? I'll just let that ring for a minute. Revelation 4, 8. There are four living creatures around the throne, and I suppose they might be the holiest things in all of creation because they are closest to the manifest presence of God in heaven. It says they, they cover their faces and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They say it three times. Thrice holy God. Isaiah 6.3, we have the same picture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. How holy is our God? It's one of his perfections, which means the holiness is permeating the whole of his essence. There's never a part of God that's ever without holiness. So believers, we are to prioritize holiness as our new family culture. So not only, not only do we need to recognize the privilege that God has given us in saving us, that we need to prepare our minds for action, but we also need to prioritize holiness as our new family culture. And finally, we need to cultivate the protection of reverent fear. Cultivate the protection of of reverent fear. This might sound strange to some of you, but read verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Wow. And if you call on him as father, the word if can be translated since, but either way, do believers call on God? Do they pray to God? Of course they do. This is, a, this is something that we do. So since you call on him as father, and again, it's a relationship word. It, it's, it's, it's speaking of his relationship with his beloved children. If you call on him as father, as all believers do, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds? The word judge pictures a heavenly courtroom. And the idea of impartial means that God is not swayed in the accuracy of his judgment on sin by human conduct or human anything. God always judges sin. By the way, know this. There will be no sin ever sinned in all of human history from Adam and Eve until the very end of time that will not be judged by God. Every sin in all of human history by you, me, anybody else, dead or alive, will always be judged by God. It will be punished. The question is, who will take the punishment? You or Jesus? You or Jesus? So when it says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, we need to know that we serve a loving father who, because he is holy, and because he is righteous, and because he is justice, these are all perfections of his character, he will always judge sin, including that in his children. Therefore, he says, conduct yourselves with fear 
It's the same word used in verse 15 when he said, be holy in all your conduct. But not only would he be holy in our conduct, but that conduct, that holiness is to be adjoined to fear. Now that's a little weird thinking, isn't it? We're used to thinking of God as being so very loving, we shouldn't fear him. In fact, somebody might say, wait a second, 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Right? So we're not to fear God. Well, I would encourage you to read the rest of the verse and read the two preceding it. Listen to what it says in 1 John 4, 16 and 17 and 18. By this is love perfected in us. In other words, love reaches its intended result in the lives of believers so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. That's what's in view, the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. In other words, because we're like him. Then if I go on to 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What fear is it talking about? Fear of the day of judgment, particular fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And the word perfected means that love has not had its effect on that person. In other words, they're not abiding in love. They're not in Christ. That's the idea. So the fear that's being talked about in 1 John is fear of ultimate condemnation and ultimate separation from God in hell, which doesn't apply to believers. See, perfect love, because we've been loved by Christ, we don't fear that at all. I don't fear eternal judgment. Why? Because Christ has taken my eternal judgment upon himself at the cross. And if you're a believer, he's taken yours too. But what's being spoken of here in 1 Peter is a different kind of fear. It's holy reverence. It is fear. There is a sense of trembling. But it's not because we fear cruelty. It's not because we fear ultimate punishment. It's more like, um, I'm trying to think of the best way I can describe this. And this might look a little silly, so I apologize. But I used to live in Arizona. And you know, there's a great big ditch in one corner of Arizona. They call it the Grand Canyon. And, and um, I have, uh, what do they call it, acrophobia, fear of heights. You know, if I go to Seattle on the Space Needle and walk around the outside part, I get a little woozy. Well, guess what? When, when I approach the rim of the Grand Canyon, I've hiked around part of it and I've gone, hiked down into it when we, when we lived there. Um, at the Grand Canyon, in the, in the sites for tourists, there are these old iron railings that are like this far apart. You could almost drive a, a Daihatsu between those railings. They're not going to catch anybody if they slip, right? And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm well aware as I come up to the edge of the canyon, this is huge. It's enormous. And I become very aware of my smallness. I become very aware of how nothingness I am in comparison to the vastness and the beauty of the Grand Canyon. And I can't, it's true. This is, this is how I approach. The closer I get, the more I see of its grandeur and how big it is, the lower I have to go. I don't have, I don't have a choice. I'm afraid. Why? Because it's scary? Because it's out to get me? No, because it's so big. And I, I can't even get up all the way because my body won't let me. That's what I'm trying to describe. For believers, when we come to understand who our God is, there is a holy fear, a genuine trembling that we have. And honestly, that, there's also a fear. I don't want to bring displeasure to my dad. I don't want to bring his loving discipline upon me for sin. I don't want to do anything that he hates. And don't, don't get me wrong, God hates sin. God hates sin. In fact, one of the biggest problems in the Christian church today, in my heart and perhaps in yours, is that we don't understand how much God hates sin. Because 
It happens in my life, and I don't hate it like he hates it, and I need to. Right? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And remember, we saw last week, the time of our exile is the entire time of our lives here on earth. First Peter 2.23 says, he judges righteously. First Peter 4.5, he is the judge of both the living and the dead. Listen to this. Psalm 36, 1 and 2 says this. It's the wicked man that doesn't fear God. Not the believer. The believer fears God. He says, it's the wicked man that doesn't fear God. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. God hates sin. You see, there's sinful fear. There's irrational fear. When we fear something, God says, do not fear it. That's irrational fear. But there's real fear that's actually healthy and good. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but I don't like touching hot burners on top of the stove. I have a reasonable fear. It's quite rational. I don't want to touch that. And that's the same reason moms don't let their little babies touch that either, right? Because they fear they're being hurt. The child runs out. There's cars in the street. Where's the mom doing? Stop! And runs out there. Grabs them. Why? It's a real fear. Um, about a month, maybe a month and a half ago, I went to, because the COVID thing was starting, my daughter was at uh, Montana Bible College, my youngest daughter. And we thought we might should bring her home because we think we're gonna, they're going to close the school and go online. So I went to go pick her up. And I don't know if you all know, but I drive a little teeny car. It's called a Smart. It's about the smallest car you can find. Um, and as I'm driving to Montana, I figure we're going to go. We're going to pack all her stuff up, put her stuff in the Honda, because there's no room in my car for anything. And we're going to follow each other back to Washington, where I live in Spokane. Well, as I'm going on the highway, two things happen. The first thing is high winds come up. And my little car, as soon as a high wind hits it from the side, all of a sudden I've got to correct. And it's pretty frightening, honestly. Although as long as there's nothing wrong with the road, I can handle it. The guy behind me is probably thinking, what's wrong with this guy? Because I'm all over the place because he's got a normal car. I've got this little teeny sail that weighs nothing that's blown around all over by the wind. But during that trip, as I'm getting close to Bozeman, Montana, it begins to snow. And the one thing I know about the smart car is it's the worst car ever in the snow. It's got a wheelbase about, well, you can touch both windows at the same time on the inside, front and back. So it just wants to spin in the snow. So I'm thinking there is no way if there's snow on the ground tomorrow and there's still wind that I'm driving back to Washington. So what do we do? The next morning we loaded up her car and we took her car back to Washington. And I came back a week and a half later when the weather cleared up with my wife. Why? I had a very reasonable fear about being in that car in that kind of situation. Very reasonable fear. Now let me tell you, there is no more reasonable fear than a holy fear, a holy reverence. Can I even say it this way? A worshipful heart towards our Father in relation to our conduct before Him because He is the judge who hates sin. And even though He loves you, He wants to kill sin in you. Verse 18. We are not only to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, but we're all supposed to know something in verse 18, knowing that. In fact, the word knowing in this case means that the people Peter's writing to, they already know this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, a payment was made to set you free from your former state of imprisonment and condemnation to your sin. That was Christ paid the price for your freedom. You were ransomed from what? 
from the futile ways, for the empty, useless, sinful life of your past before Christ gave you hope, when you were living to satisfy the passions of your former ignorance, like we saw in verse 14, you were ransomed from something, from those evil ways that we used to live, that you inherited from your forefathers. We all inherit these from our moms and our dads. Uh, every parent knows this. You know, we were talking about this earlier. You know, anybody has a, has a child, what's the first word almost that they learn to speak? No. For my eldest daughter, it was kitty first, and then it was no. But guess which one she used against her parents? No. In rebellion against the will of their parents. Vody uh, Bauckham calls kids because of their inherent sinfulness, vipers in a diaper. And, I, and that's true. There is, there is within each one of us not only a sinful bent, but that's who we are. We're sinners. And the second we get an opportunity, what do we do? We exercise that bent. Knowing that you were ransomed from those sinful ways that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold. He's making a contrast. Again, we think of silver or gold as the most important things here on earth. But he says, no, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The implication is you can stack up every ounce of gold and silver ever mined and then mine the earth empty of what remains and it wouldn't hold a candle to the value of the sacrifice of Jesus' life on your behalf. He was like a lamb without blemish or spot. That pictures in the Old Testament the substitutionary lamb that took the place of the sinner and was slaughtered for the sin of the sinner who was repentant before God, who of course was the picture of Jesus because the blood of sheep and goats could never take away sins, only the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter is telling us that the incalculable and unsurpassable cost of our ransom, which was Jesus' life, should motivate our reverential conduct, our holy fear, and holy fear is just another way of saying reverence, and I could even say it this way, of worship. There's a famous missionary, he wrote this. Worship is what happens when, by your actions and your attitude, you acknowledge the superiority of God. You give him the respect, the honor, the gratitude that are due him, and you recognize his holiness and his glory. So what I want you to see in the second section of First Peter. First Peter is showing us four steps that we need to take to live a holy life. And what's interesting is these are the first four steps and they're the second four steps and they're the third four steps, on and on and on as we live our life in Christ. We need to continually recognize the privilege of our salvation. We need to prepare our minds for action, setting our hope in what Christ brings in our salvation when he comes again. We need to prioritize holiness as our new family culture. And we need to cultivate the protection provided to our lives by reverent fear. Sermon's over. Let me ask a couple questions and then we'll be done. And these are evaluation questions, so don't answer out loud, but think. Answer internally. Are you saved? Do you understand how privileged you are to have understood and been changed by the gospel if you're saved? 
Does the price Jesus paid for your redemption motivate your life towards holiness? What is your greatest motivating hope? Is it Christ's return or does something else have a stronger hold on your desires? Is holiness, is, is living for God, for God's pleasure, is it a priority in your life? Is his word your standard or are you a standard unto yourself? Does your spirit grieve at the thought of displeasing him with sin that he hates? Do you have a sense of holy fear that trembles in joy at the greatness and awe of God? Father, I've done my best to communicate your word. I'm very thankful that your word does not depend on me but your spirit. Lord, would you please take this word that has been spoken, put it deep in our hearts, help us to understand it more and more and more. I pray that not only we rejoice in our salvation, but that we would be moved towards holiness and holy fear, and that our hope would not be in the things of this world, but be, that it would be fully looking forward to the return of Christ, and that our lives might be lived according to the value of his sacrifice. That's what I'm praying, Lord, in Jesus' name. The God of ages
Christ, our living hope. Uh, just a word of encouragement. Um, thank you, Pastor Dave, for the message. Thank you, Dia, and your team. Thank you, tech team. As we gather here, even on a Thursday night, we are worshiping our God, our Savior. Um, and I am excited for you to join us this Sunday morning, or for you right now. Um, I would like to read Philippians 4. Um, just as an encouragement as we go about our day. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your presence be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Have a wonderful week.